And we've been reframing and refilling some ideas common to church world around the person of Jesus in relationship with Him. And so one of the things that we talked about is how salvation is not a set of ideas to believe, but a person to know and love. And we talked about what that means and why that matters. We talked about eternal life and how eternal life is less about just going somewhere someday, but also about knowing someone and how eternity is with us in every moment because the eternal one inhabits every moment with us. And we talked about maybe that it's not that God can't look upon sin, but maybe that sin can't look upon God. That it's our sin and our shame that distort the image of God, and that's why we sing songs like, You're a good, good Father, because our shame, we need to be reminded that God is good and for us and with us and cares for us. Because we often hear messages that contradict that, don't we? Whether they come from the inside or the outside. So we need to be reminded. And then last week we talked about heaven and how heaven isn't necessarily just something far away or for some day, but heaven is the space that God occupies and God occupies this space. And we talked about how the kingdom of heaven isn't something that we will only experience one day, we will experience it fully one day, but we're invited to participate and pull that future into the present. And that's what being church means, is to experience a taste of what God has for all of us one day and to say, and bring that into the, it's almost like we're to be the movie trailer of the world to come. And so that's what we were talking about. And then for this morning, the thing that was coming to my mind and heart, it, it took me a while to figure out how it fit. I was spending some time in the, the parable that is often known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And if you got the email and read it, you'll notice that we called it something different, and maybe we should be calling it the parable of the, the unidentified man that gets beat up and robbed and stripped and left for dead. Because if it wasn't for him, there would be no parable, right? There would be nothing to respond to, no one to respond to. But I wanted to take a few minutes and share some things with you about the background. Remember, anybody seen those? You probably haven't watched them, but you know they exist. Uh, I think it was on the E! Entertainment television. It's like the E! True Hollywood Story. Remember those, or, or I think VH1 used to do those, kind of like behind-the-scenes type stories. I wanted to, to take a few minutes and do the, the Coastlands true Hollywood story of the parable of the Good Samaritan and say, what if there's more going on here culturally and historically that really helps add nuance and layers to what's going on in this story, and what might that mean for us? And I, I need to be honest with you, but the parable of the Good Samaritan, we'll just call it that for the sake of it's less clunky, I guess. Um, but this, I struggle with this parable. I don't like that Jesus told it. I really don't like that Jesus told it because as you read through what it describes, it's insanely demanding and way over the top. Would you agree? It's like, Jesus, really? You're, you're, you're saying that's what it looks like to be neighborly? Yowzers. And, and the thing that struggled, the thing I struggled with was how could Jesus say something like this and yet the gospel we know is all about grace. It's not about works. It's about simply faith in Jesus and resting in what Jesus has done. And so why would Jesus say this is the gospel that you abide in me and, and just be in me and just rest in me? And then he says, oh, and by the way, go give up everything for some stranger that you're never going to meet and risk your life. And that's the way to eternal life. And you're like, Jesus, I hate how much you love paradox. 
And so, as you know, I do this often to you on Sunday mornings, misery loves company. I wanted to invite you into my struggle of sitting in the middle of that paradox and say, help me, maybe, fight my way out of this paper bag of conflict here. So can we look at this story together, the parable of the Good Samaritan? It's fun. Um, I'm going to skip this. This was a quote I gave last week from Dallas Willard, but I don't want to do that to us again. So, but it's there. It's there. It's not going to leave us. So would you open up with me? You can. We're going to have it up here on the screen, but if you would, if you want to read along, if you would look at Luke chapter 10, primarily found in verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, 25 to 37. Let's look at the first part together. This is after Jesus has sent out his, what, 70, I believe, disciples, and they go out and they, um, they see people, basically they bring the future into the present. They bring the kingdom. They see people healed. They see demons cast out. They see the blind seen, the lame walking. They see all these things that people will one day experience in the new heavens and the new earth, and the disciples go and actually become the instrument for that to happen, and they come back and they're rejoicing, and Jesus actually tells them, hey, don't rejoice. That you see all this happen, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that you're in relationship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Because all that you experience is a byproduct of that. But that's not the message for the morning. So, just then it says, a lawyer, now we have a certain understanding of lawyer, right? We picture Mike Fry Jr. We picture a lawyer, someone in court, but what kind of lawyer is this talking about? This is talking about an expert in the law an expert in the Mosaic Law. So this expert in the law stands up, and in first century, when they were relating to a rabbi, the students would often stand up to answer a rabbi's question or to ask a question, but it was a sign of humility. It was a sign of, Rabbi, you know better than I do, so I'm going to stand in reverence and honor. But it says that this guy is not standing out of reverence and honor, is he? He's standing to test Jesus. Have you ever seen Jesus to be one to back down from a fight? Not very often, is he? But look what he does here. Just then a lawyer stands up to test Jesus. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we talked about how his question is flawed. Remember, if you were here a few weeks ago. What can you do? What are you going to do to get your inheritance that's coming to you? You don't do anything. You get born or adopted into a family. You don't do anything to get your inheritance. So the lawyer's asking a flawed question. He probably knows that. He's probably trying to trick Jesus into responding a certain way so that they can actually put him on trial for saying something that he shouldn't have said. So he says to him, Jesus responds to him. You've got to love how Jesus always answers a question with a question. You guys remember Woody Allen? I, I read this recently that Woody Allen... The question was, why do rabbis often always answer a question with a question? And he says, well, why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question? That's just how these rabbis worked. And so Jesus answers a question with a question. He says, well, what's written in the law, Mr. Lawyer, Mr. Expert? What do you read there? The lawyer answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting the second part. Well, actually, the first part is Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. 
And the second part is Leviticus 19. I think it's verse 18. Now here's what's interesting. Leviticus 19 is the chapter in Leviticus about holiness. Ritual and moral holiness. You want to see it real quick? This is what he's quoting. Now this is very important when we come to our parable of the Good Samaritan. Look at these words. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against who? Any of your people. You think that could be important? You shall not bear a grudge or take vengeance upon any of your people. But you shall love your neighbor, and the assumption would be your neighbor is who? Your people. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's go back to this. I don't know if I can do that. Remember how I tried last time and I kept messing that up? Eric, can you take control up there for me and go back? There we go. Not that far. There we go. So he says, and look what Jesus says. Mr. Provocative Jesus that never likes to back down from a fight. He says, hey, you're right. Good answer. Do this and you will live. The lawyer's question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, do this and you will have life. Now what should the lawyer have done at this moment? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he should have just backed off, right? He should have just been like, cool, all right, good chat, Rabbi. What's for lunch? But what does he do? He asks another question. And look at what Luke tells us. Sorry for the, the font here. You can come closer if you need to. But wanting to justify himself. Man, that's when we start getting ourselves in trouble, isn't it? Wanting to justify ourselves around Jesus. It says, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Okay, Rabbi, just who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, I thought you'd never ask. You know he must have been thinking through this parable. He's just like waiting for this moment to drop this on some unsuspecting victim, right? I have messages like that. I have this message that I want to give someday at a leadership conference, one that I, like, when I'm ready to never be invited back. I have one of those in my back pocket. And I know that Jesus must have had this in his back pocket for a while. He says, okay, I thought you'd never ask. You know who your neighbor is? And so he tells a story. He says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho which is kind of a, he really means going down. I think it was like a, a few thousand feet drop in elevation from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. Now, a lot of the culture background I'm pulling from for this comes from a guy named Kenneth Bailey. If you ever have a chance to read anything by him, if you're fascinated by Middle Eastern and first century culture, this guy... He speaks Arabic, Syriac, um, he, he speaks six or seven languages. He teaches New Testament, I think, in Egypt, and he's lived in the Middle East for about five decades. So if you, yeah, I think sometime next year we're going to spend some time going through some of the parables, and a lot of it will be pulling from his information. It's fun. Let's just leave it at that. But So Kenneth Bailey, he says that, that basically in the Middle East, Somebody that was being robbed would not be beaten unless they fought back. So apparently this guy, 
decided to fight back. And he was robbed, beaten. He was stripped and left for dead. Now, one of the indicators in all of their cultures at their time, there were two main indicators of what ethnicity somebody was. One was how they dressed, and one was how they spoke, even if it was their, not their language they're speaking, but their accent. So what has this man and his situation left in terms of ethnic indicators for anybody that passes him by? Nothing, right? He has no clothes on and he can't say anything. There's no way to tell. Is he a Jew? Is he Samaritan? Is he something else? There's no way to tell. It says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. So the priests, as you know, they would have their duties in the temple in Jerusalem, and they would be on duty for about two weeks or so. And then they would make their way down, and most of them lived, obviously, outside of Jerusalem. So they would make their way home. So this priest is leaving work after a two-week shift, and he's on his way home, and he sees this person left on the side of the road. And this priest has a choice to make, doesn't he? The priests in their time, you would imagine, were probably, they were kind of like the quintessential, they were the epitome of holiness. Would the priests be really familiar with Leviticus 19 and God's desire and regulations of what holiness looks like? And so this priest is on his way home from work, and it says, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Any ideas why the priest would have done that? Laura. Yeah. So if he was dead, the priest would be defiled. He would be considered unclean. And he would have to make the trek all the way back up to Jerusalem and go through a week-long purification ceremony. And then, you know what else? He wouldn't be able to collect the tithes that he got his income from. So he'd go a week without pay. And he wouldn't be able to do the distribution to the poor that he was charged to do as a priest. So there's a little bit riding on this situation for the priest. Would you agree? He's kind of like, uh, okay, um, bring home the bacon to my family and distribute to the poor or help this potentially dead person who really might be beyond help. So maybe, I don't know, we need to give the priest a little more benefit of the doubt, or maybe he really is a scoundrel. I don't know, but at least it helps to understand a little bit of his scenario, that there was profound risk for this priest in helping this unidentified person, right? And so Jesus says, so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the Levite, do you remember who the Levites were? The Levites were the assistants to the priest in the temple. They were the ones who would help the priests in the temple. So imagine the dynamic. Do you think that this Levite might have known that this priest was going down to Jer Jericho ahead of him? It's very likely, right? Maybe this priest was his boss. So this Levite is going down, probably knows the priest is ahead of him. And he has a choice to make. Now imagine that the Levite decides to do something and help this man. And he gets to Jericho and he encounters the priest. What does that say about the priest? Kind of says, I think I'm better than you. I don't trust your interpretation of the law and what your responsibility is. So the Levite's thinking, okay, now what WWMB 
D, what would my boss do? And how much trouble will I get if I help, right? He has to think through all these dynamics. The Levite knows that the priest didn't help him, so he says, oh, well, I guess I'm off the hook then, or it's probably better not to help. How do those jokes go? Remember the jokes whenever somebody starts with, it's like a, it's usually what, a bishop or a priest and what? A rabbi. That's like the ultimate trio, right? A bishop, a priest, and a rabbi walk into a bar, and, then, and, and you know that's going to be the three, right? The set of three. Um, they had that in the first century as well. And the order, the set, would have been, would have been a priest, would have been a Levite, and there would have been a layman. So do you think that all of these people are waiting for Jesus to say, a layman is passing down the road next? Most likely. Let there be light. And good old meek and mild Jesus, he basically explodes the story in their face. He says, oh, you're waiting for the rabbi to come along. Well, sorry, the rabbi's not in this story. But we have a Samaritan. How many of you have heard that the Samaritans were kind of the outcasts in their world? Guess what? That's putting it insanely, ridiculously, incredibly lightly. The Samaritans were not outcasts as much as they were sworn enemies. They were way beyond outcasts. They were actually enemies. Just one chapter before this very parable, Remember when James and John come to Jesus and they say, Lord, should we call down fire upon them to have them burned up? Remember reading that? That's Luke chapter 9, and that's in regards to a group of Samaritans, people in Samaria. It says that Jesus sent his disciples out. They were going through Samaria, and they were not accepted. They were not welcomed into homes by these people in Samaria because the Samaritans knew that they were on their way to Jerusalem. And they said, no thanks. We don't want anything to do with you. They would not invite them in. And so Jesus' disciples come and they say, shall we call down fire? Can we, Lord? And Jesus says, yeah. Hit this switch. Now Jesus says, you don't understand, do you? By the way, remember when we did the series about understanding the Old Testament in light of the New, in light of the character of Jesus? This is a great example Because when was another time that fire was called down on a group of people? Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet Jesus says, I'm not the kind of God that resorts to calling down fire at every whim. So that leaves us with some things to think through, doesn't it? But anyways, Jesus says, no, we're not calling down fire on them. Remember the story in John chapter 4 when Jesus is at the well and this Samaritan woman comes and meets him? And they have this interchange and Jesus kind of reads her mail about her relationships and stuff like that, but she makes this super random, so we think, comment to him. She says, so our fathers used to worship on this mountain, yet you all insist that you need to worship on this mountain. 
so which one is it? And Jesus says, actually, it's not about which mountain. You remember this story, John chapter 4? Jesus says, it's not about the mountain, but the Father is looking for worshipers to worship in spirit and in truth. This is really, really important. The Samarians, Samaritans, however you want to call them, basically came into being around 721 B.C. when the kingdom of Israel split. Remember when it's Jeroboam and Rehoboam? And their kingdom splits in two. And so the Samarians were the ones that were made up of the northern kingdoms. And basically what they did is they would leave all of these idols intact and all these other cultures would come in and they would intermarry. They were, it was just profound, the idol worship that they were involved in. And so the other, the, I guess the, the tribes that made up the tribe of Judah saw them as the impure, the half-breeds, the defiled ones, the ones that had no place in the kingdom of God. That's the background, that's kind of the, the ancestry of these Samaritans. Is they're looked down upon and they're actually hated, they're despised. And Jesus says, so here comes the hero of our story, coming along on his horse. And he's a Samaritan. And you can imagine their blood starting to boil as they hear that. It says, But a Samaritan while traveling came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. So he's using his precious resources. He knows the healing power of oil. Amen. He knows the healing power of oils, and he pours wine on them. He tends to and bandages this man's wounds. He's using his resources to care for this man. Then it says, he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn. So he found a Motel 6 in the middle of nowhere. Now I used to, when I would read this story, I would picture like one of those deserted motels or hotels on the side of the road that's like there's nothing around it, right? It's, it's secluded, it's safe, there's nothing around. But there's no, according to Kenneth Bailey, there's no archaeological findings of an inn that's out in the middle of nowhere. It was in the middle of town and in the middle of town meant in the middle of where? Jericho. Now to understand what this means, picture this, okay? Picture a Native American in 1850 walking into Dodge City with his horse next to him with a cowboy unconscious slung over the back of the horse with arrows sticking out of his back. Did you picture that? And the Native American is just going to walk perfectly safely right in the middle of Dodge City and just tend for this cowboy, right? Not right? <laughs> I wasn't alive in 1850. I don't know. Can you imagine the response? If the, if the Native American is wise, what would he do? All right, boy. Send the horse with the cowboy, right? Into town and then just get on his way. Yeah, slap the rear and ride like the wind, bullseye. But that's not what this Samaritan does. If he was smart, he would have left. He would have sat on the outside of town and sent this stranger in to be cared for. But he says, it says he goes in and he takes him into the inn. It says that the next morning, it says he takes care of him. And the next day he takes out two denarii, which is enough to care for him for even up to two weeks for food, lodging, and the health club, and eventually the limo, and whatever else he needed. 
But it says he leaves them with two weeks of pay. And he says, anything else that needs to be cared for or covered, when I get back, I will cover it. One of the things that we don't realize is that if this Samaritan isn't able to cover the debts that this wounded man incurs, he would be sold into slavery by the innkeeper. So he's basically putting himself at the mercy of this person in such a profound way that we don't really have a way of calculating that. And instead of just sending him into town, he walks into town with him and cares for him and gives up his time, his resources, his energy, his wages. Are you seeing why I hate this story? Because I don't have time for this. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you do. I hope you do. But I don't have time to live like this. He says, I will repay. He gave the money to the innkeeper and said, take care of him. When I come back, I'll repay you whatever more you spend. The innkeeper could have totally exploited that, couldn't he? He sees that it's a Samaritan. He's like, oh yeah, this guy is going to renovate our whole inn. You owe me. He says, I will repay you whatever more you spend. And then Jesus drops, and here's the pregnant moment, right? He, he drops the question. He says, okay, Mr. Expert in the Law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? Which one was being neighborly? You notice that the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. It's like, the one. The one who showed him mercy. And you could picture, I almost picture the lawyer just kind of downcast, looking down, full of shame and frustration and disgust. And then Jesus says, Go. And do likewise. And we all say, thanks a lot, Jesus. Thanks a lot, Luke, for including that one. So I started thinking about this. Do you think Jesus is just trying to set the ethical bar so high that none of us can really do anything about it? Do you think that Jesus forgot that his gospel is not about faith? <laughs> or that Jesus decided, you know, maybe in this instance my gospel isn't about grace and faith, but let's, let's just go back to works a little bit and see how we do with that. Do you think that Jesus forgot what his gospel is all about? Or is there something else going on here that helps us understand why Jesus would tell this story, why he would say, go and do likewise? Why I feel profoundly challenged by it. And I'm like, uh, I don't know how to go and do all that. I've never sacrificed like that in any way for anybody that I've known, much less anybody that I don't know and have no way of knowing and will never get thanks from. So let's pray. Anybody else feeling that, that tension that I'm feeling though? Like what do you, there's a paradox here. Why would Jesus give us this? And this is maybe what I think Jesus might be doing. Can I say one more maybe in there? 
This is maybe what I possibly think Jesus might be potentially considering doing. Maybe. I think he might be redefining for them what true holiness is. Because they had this understanding that holiness was to be set apart from the defiled, the unclean, from the ways of the world, from all these things. And I know that there's no churches or believers that function in that way, right? The holiness is primarily about what you're set apart from. And I think Jesus is saying, no, holiness in God's economy, in God's kingdom, holiness is so much less about what you're set apart from and so much more about what you're set apart for. It's who you're set apart to love. It's who you're set apart to serve. It's how you're set apart to represent this beautiful God into the world. Did the priest represent the compassion, love, care, tenderness, and healing power of God to this man on the side of the road? Wasn't the priest the one that was supposed to be the face of God to the people? He was the representative of God to the people. Did he represent the beauty, the nature, the character, the tenderness, the compassion of God to this person on the side of the road? What about the Levite? Did the Levite? What about the, the other one, the one that showed him mercy? Did he express, did he embody the love, compassion, faithfulness, goodness, healing power and tenderness, the ultimate giving up of all resources? Did he embody that into the world? Do you think that maybe he understood holiness more than the priest and more than Levite, maybe more than both of them combined? Last week we talked about how we're called to be the ones that bring the presence of the future into the present. And I think maybe that's what Jesus is getting at in this parable. Because often we get into this mentality of, well, I mean, the world's going to go where it's going to go, and what's going to happen is what's going to happen. And Jesus says, no, that's not how we're to respond. We are to be the ones, remember in the words of Jacques Elol, the ones in whom the future, the kingdom of God, and the present world collide. And I think that's what the Samaritan understood. And that's why I think Jesus says, go and do likewise. He says, this road, and this is to borrow a phrase from N.T. Wright, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was the road to new creation. It was the road of finding out what God is up to and participating in it, joining in, being invited into it and saying, you know what? I value that more than I value anything else. My time, my money, my reputation, even my own life. I mean, isn't that fascinating to anybody else but me? The fact that the sacrifice, the, thing, the risk that this Samaritan took to care for this man on the side of the road? It's profound. And he says, I am going to give up all these things for the sake of being this expression of God into the world. By the way, 
before we come back to what I was just saying, you know who I think is the most clear representation of Jesus in this parable? How many of you would think that Jesus is the Samaritan? And in a way, he is, right? But does Jesus also relate to the one that was left beaten, stripped, bloodied, and unrecognizable? Anything you've done for the least of these, you have done unto me. And so Jesus says about the Samaritan, now you go and do likewise. You want to know what to do to experience eternal life? Go and do likewise. Maybe the go and do likewise is the extent to which the Samaritan associated with himself and brought himself into the experience of the suffering and the loss and the grief and the trauma of this person on the side of the road. And maybe Jesus is saying, hey, remember I told you to take up your cross, to come and follow me. Associate yourself with all that I've given up for the sake of healing the world. I mean, isn't that what the church is? The church is the body of Christ. The ones that embody Christ into the world. And I know there's like this razor's edge there because now I don't know, does this is so it's it's so close to kind of sending me back into works performance relapse. It's close to that. But it's not that, is it? I think that Jesus is saying this is what it looks like to live life with the eternal one, and it will look like giving your life for the ones that need it most. I don't know what to make of that clock. <laughs> I don't know if they changed it or not. Okay, it has been changed. All right. I woke up feeling like I was in the twilight zone this morning. Anybody else? The time change? I was like, what? So let me ask you. I want to I pray for us, but I, I don't think I've resolved any of the paradox, any of the tension, but... Isn't it fun how much Jesus can load into one single story? <laughs> how much he can say without even saying? And the way he kind of cuts through. And here's another quick, I guess, application point or, or thing that this has caused me to process. Oh, this is what I was going to say. I need to look at my wife and it'll trigger me. The word holiness, because you represent this. The word holiness in English, you know what part of its etymology is? Part of its root is from our word wholeness. Holiness and wholeness cannot be separated, even though we've tried. And this is one of the things I think this story tells us, is that the more holy we are, the more whole we are, paradoxically, the more space there is inside of us to make room for the other, the outcast, even the enemy. And as we grow in holiness, as we grow in wholeness, who is it that God is making space in our lives, our hearts for? Is it the fundamentalist Christian? Is it your mother-in-law? I don't want to fill in any more blanks because I don't want to like put something in your mind that isn't already there. But isn't that beautiful that holiness and holiness are inseparable? Holiness and wholeness? 
God says, be holy for I am holy. And I, we often think, well, that just means, you know, don't touch, don't taste, don't do, don't think, don't, 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 don't. How many people want nothing to do with Christianity because the list of don'ts is absolutely overwhelming? But you know what I think is beautiful and what I see happening over the last few years? Is I see the church and the definition of church changing where our reputation is based less on what we stand against and more what we stand for. And isn't that a beautiful opportunity for us? And if we understood what Jesus is saying, isn't that what would happen to us? As people say, oh, that's the kind of church that you're a part of? A church that's for throwing the dead cowboy over the back of its horse and taking it into Dodge City? Because that cowboy has infinite value because it's made in the image of an infinite God? That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. So God, would you make us holy as we become more whole in you? And would you create more space in our lives and our hearts for the outcasts, for the downtrodden, for the lost, for the beaten, for the beat down, the beat up, for the confused, and even for the enemy? Would you make more space in our hearts for anybody that needs space and is looking for space in your heart? May they find it through us through this community, through this church. Jesus, would you help us to be ones that participate in redefining holiness away from what we're set apart from and leaning into what we're set apart for, for bringing the presence of the future into the now. And living life with the eternal one now. Help us to be holy because you are holy. With all the nuance that that really means. For your kingdom's sake we pray. Amen. So I wanted to open up. I think it's, I, I always think it's good for us to pray for one another. Um, I have some things stirring in my heart. I'm wondering if there's anybody else that you feel like this whole idea of God kind of inviting you into something, of God stirring you for something more, um, you feel that, but you don't know what it looks like. You don't know what it means. And I would love to pray for people that, that are kind of at that place. You're like, all right, I've got something brewing, something stirring, but I don't know what to do with it. I'd love to pray for you, but I want to see, do you two have anything that you wanted to, to add? I, I'm getting signals from you that you do. How can we pray for one another and how can we respond? <laughs>